0: Hey folks, and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige. We are back, Sam is back with us, and we are back to normal operations. Those who listen listening to the show know we have a few segments in the show. We pick a film, we review that film, we discuss the th- ideas and themes that throws up. And we're currently in our third season, and so we're doing a series of directors. Each month we look at a different director and some of the movies that they've made. This month we are looking at Sofia Coppola, and I'll hand over to Sam later on to talk about this, this week's film. But as always, we start the show with our, what else we've been watching. Other shows, other TV shows, even books or music we've been listening to. Normally in the last week that we've enjoyed, uh, but given that Sam has been off for a couple of weeks being being a dad, it, he's, he's got a longer period to pull from. So, Sam, have you enjoyed anything in the last couple of weeks you want to talk about?
1: Yes. Well, I've enjoyed... I suppose I've enjoyed a number of things. Um, Whether or not my son is awake is a determining factor in, in what I can watch. Um so when when he's he's been asleep I've been re watching Jonathan Creek because it, it's it's enjoyable and I don't have to concentrate too much and if he stirs and I can deal with him without missing anything. Um if my wife's in the room then we Watch something ridiculous on Netflix called Ultimate Beastmaster, which again is, it, it's not really a problem if if my son wakes up, and um then, as as he was in times when he was awake, we were watching sort of comforting U slash PG films, and my I suppose my my recommendation for this week because the other two are just sort of, um, popcorn TV don't really need much recommendation, is uh, Paddington 2. It's a film we watched with him and really enjoyed. It's an, it's incredibly heartwarming. It's just the sort of thing you want to watch if you're just spending time with kids. Um, The f- the first one was utterly brilliant and this is... I mean, it's not as good as the first one, but then very little is as good as the... Uh, a one-off like that. Um, Hugh Bonner was very good, Sally Hawkins very good, Ben Whishaw was very good, as Paddington himself. Um, The narrative was incredibly predictable, such that I was predicting the next beats out loud, much to the delight of my wife. Um, But it was just... I mean, I didn't care that I knew exactly what was coming. It was, was thoroughly enjoyable. By you?
0: Uh, well I, I have not quite the recommendation you have um, for my sins and because I have a morbid curiosity in the last few days my wife and I have watched the 2016 reboot of Ghostbusters. Right. It's one of those films, Like it was a very divis- divisive film when it came out, very divisive and a lot of people were throwing up a lot of anger about the film, a very idea of there being a female reboot of what was a once very male franchise. And I'm not in that camp. I have no problem with a female reboot.
1: Before we hear what you say, I I was expecting you, given that I know the sort of person you are, to look quite favourably on it and to have quite a good review because you come from that place. But... On you
0: go. But, yes, so, and just to try, like, I'm, I'm really looking forward to Ocean's 8 that's coming out soon, which is appear a female reboot of the Ocean's franchise. That
1: looks really
0: good. That being said, the Ghostbusters remake is a bad film. Uh-huh. It is, it is, uh, it's not offensively bad, it's just, just terrible. It's just really bad. We, I watched, I watched it the other night and I didn't laugh. It's, somehow it's lost any kind of humour from the original one, any kind of edge to it, the effects which somehow have become a lot better yet look worse. There is an over reliance on like Saturday morning TV gunking as humour, um, and it just it doesn't hold together in any of the similar ways that the original one does. And it was not a disappointment because it's Melissa McCarthy, and I have very low expectations for her, her, her movies. Yes. Um, but it was it was exactly as bad as I thought it might be. Um, so that's a shame because I would have liked to have seen you know, a, a female reboot of that franchise, it's a very interesting proposition I just think that it was wildly miscast and wildly badly directed. but I'm sure the hate will pour in because it was, it was a beloved film by certain people, but yes it was very much experienced, I'm like well that was my wife said to me as we were watching it, well this is enjoyable fluff and I went well it's fluff <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's kind of where I am with that so yeah Unfortunately, not a good recommendation this week, guys, but I thought I should uh, mention it as we have watched it. This
1: week, we are moving on to the films of Sophia Coppola, and we're beginning with her 1999 debut, The Virgin Suicides. Dreamer, someone completely out of touch with reality. Based on another debut, the first novel of Jeffrey Gendes, the film tells the story of a group of sisters in 1970s America in the care of a fiercely protective and highly religious mother. Kathleen Turner. Um the father is nominally incredibly religious as well, but the father is not much of a figure in the in the household. It's very much matriarchal. Um these girls are idolized by the boys in the neighbourhood through whose eyes we see the girls' narrative play out. And these boys kind of serve as our proxies in trying to make sense of what happens to them. So, Rob, your thoughts? Well, I think I tweeted a little bit about this uh,
0: during the week, but one of the great joys of doing this podcast with Sam over the last three years is that I watch films that I otherwise would not have watched. And Virgin Suicide is a complete blind spot for me. I've never seen it before. And wasn't I've been very aware of existence, um, and that we may touch more of that in the coming weeks as to my relationship with Sofia Coppola... But I've never watched it. I just was probably never going to until we reached this on the show. That being said, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very, very good film. I can see why it has got all the praise it's received. I thought that the the main main character, I suppose, in, in, in Lux, uh, Lux Lisbon, is uh, Kirsten Dunce in her most probably kind of Ethereal role and her most kind of electric role. She's this strange mix of ingenue, um, which becomes a sort of a sexually experienced woman who becomes sort of the the architect of the uh, the sort of the ending of the film. She brings a, a sort of a sweetness to her role, and she brings also a world weariness and certainly a towards the end a brokenness of her character to it. But I think that the standouts for me was. Was the, the ensemble in many ways? I think you know, her and Josh Hartnett are the two who've gone on to do many great things after this movie. But to me, it was all about everything. All the characters in this looked like teenagers. They all had that kind of world-weary, wide-eyedness that teenagers often have. Um, we'll touch more on this as, as we get into the sort of the discussion later on. But to me, I think that it's there's some interesting ideas in the way the film presents memory and the way it presents how we react or interact with memories that can't be changed um, but I'll touch more on that as we get forward. sam what did you think
1: um i'm i'm really glad to enjoy this it it was one that i i've tried to read the book for various reasons it was just something i didn't get into although i do like jeffrey Jenley's writing in general um his, I believe, his next book or one of his later books, Middlesex, was brilliant. It's one of my favourite novels. Um, so I, I was pleased to watch this film. Finally, get get to grips with this, and I, I do This film just stayed with me. That's hmm. the. I suppose that's a really positive thing I can say about this film. But. Some films I will forget instantly. Even some of the films, many of the films we've done with this podcast have just been, I mean, there are some films that are so bad, they stay with me forever, like the traumatic experience of The Lone Ranger. But it, but many, many of the films I will just forget. And this film I didn't forget. This film stayed with me. There's something ethereal, as you said, something haunting about it, Um. It's not just the performances. Kirsten Dunst is very good, and Kathleen Turner, you see what happens to her over the course of the film. But also, couplers' use of music as well. The fact that this this film was scored by an unknown French band who went on to be huge, and you think, well... this this for me, hearing the music of air is very very reminiscent of this period in the late nineties, and you think, well, this is both nostalgic for me taking it back to the late nineties and also further nostalgic because this is a film rooted in the nineteen seventies as well mm. um yeah i I thought this this film was brilliant and it, it did stick with me the performances stuck with me, and the Fact that you didn't really know where the narrative was going, although you definitely did because of the title. Um, you weren't sure what was happening at any one time, and the performances were great. And yet, I haven't got enough good things to say about this film.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. Now you, you touched a bit on there, and that's what I'm going to kind of open up and talk about themes of this movie. The one thing that, that really hit me. Towards the end of watching Movie, which I hadn't figured, is that this film isn't what I'd call a natural narrative presented to us. This whole film is the unreliable narrator of the teenage boy now older telling us the story.
1: Mm.
0: This is this isn't you know, if we if we look at films as, as narratives, very often films are a, what I'd call a real narrative. You are watching it as it unfolds. You know, most most films you watch are that way whereas this is being told, and the, and the, the scene that twigged that for me, because it's the scene that really bugged me when I was watching it, is the scene when you see grown-up Trip, Trip Fontaine, who is the uh, the heartthrob of the local school who dear flowers Lux at Homecoming Dance. He, you see him grown up, you see him, he's in rehab, and he uh, talks about Lux. And I suddenly thought, well, that's a documentary move. That's, that's a documentary shot. The rest of this film isn't, documentary this film isn't you know we don't see any other characters growing up we don't see anything else in the modern day we just see the him he's the only character we see in the and i was really like why why would he be involved why would you see him um and then it occurred to me this this is not that real narrative this is a a narrator the main character um telling us the story and everyone else in this story is either one of his friends who they say they meet up and talk about it so They're the ones who have put together this story. The Lisbon family, who are all either passed away, who have left, and the only other person important in this story is Trip. And that's why he's in it, because he's the only one they could go and talk to. He is the only other one that they could go and sort of interact with and sort of get a modern day take on these events. Because he isn't, everyone else is either passed away, gone, or in the group anyway. And so it's becomes this very different film to me and that, that that understanding really opened up the film in many ways because the film doesn't have a lot of character depth doesn't have a lot of narrative sense like things happen in the film but most frustratingly if you want to view it that way the film doesn't actually explain anything that happened it doesn't explain why these sisters killed themselves it doesn't explain why the parents where they were there's no explanation as to what went on and that's that is because the kids don't understand. The grown-up boys on the street don't understand what happened. Mm. And you got and once you get once I clicked on that, I suddenly realised that's why that's why these five girls are so beautiful and are so, despite ranging across like you know, six seven years, the sort of teenage years, they all look kind of the same age. And that's because they have this, you know, this remem- it's all being remembered by these boys who've now grown up they their teenage, and so people are the wrong age because you can't remember them as. You, it's all through memory this isn't a real narrative the whole thing is memory mm. it's why some things don't make sense it's why there's gaps in the narrative and that's why you know it, it's it's all told from their point of view and that's the one thing that really clicked this film for me was this understanding that there isn't an omniscient narrator there isn't an omniscient viewpoint that we are in we are in that pov of that neighborhood boy
1: hmm one one of the things that all well, like you said there there are a couple of things that bug you and then you think well there's a reason for that mm. one of them is that the narrator doesn't actually appear i mean you you kind of get the sense that he is one of the neighborhood boys but mm. the narrator is it is an actor that i had had to look up who You'd probably know from being Phoebe's brother and friends it's Giovanni Ribisi who doesn't mm-hmm. appear in this. So immediately you've got the sense of, well, how does he know all this? Mm-hmm. And also, how does he have access to Trip Fontaine in rehab? How does he... And it's kind of like he's... Th- this film would be infinitely the poor if it became clear that Giovanni Ribisi knew these boys, and then also was the director of a documentary film that went into Cedric Fontaine Rehab.
0: Yes, the balance between those two, and that, and that kind of... I think about this word of ethereal, you know, the, the floating shots through this neighbourhood that we have in the film. But the film's meant to sit somewhere between these things, mm. and you're meant to leave it with, in many ways, more of an emotional reaction to it than a, a intellectual one. Yes. You know, yeah. you, you're meant to you're meant to evoke feelings from this. And there's, and I mean, we'll touch on more on this as we get through more of Fake sort of filmography. But she has this sort of way with this film of you between the look and the colors of of this neighborhood, this neighborhood of Grosse Point, Michigan. You get this feeling of just like memory and loss and 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 remembrance. Like it, it is that it's not how I'm trying to explain how it is. Um, OK, I'm going to talk about a film I made um, for a brief moment. So it's a bit diversion, guys, bear with me. I made a film called Away Days um, many years back now. And it's a film about a 70s uh, football hooligan club and the sort of gay love story um, sort of coming of age that happens within two boys within this, this, this uh, football hooligan club. And it's set in the 70s. And when we were making this film, we wanted to look like a 70s film. And we wanted it looked so. Even though we were sitting in there, and often these days with sort of period films, that they look like a modern film. All the you know the sets and dressing and acting are all in um, in in the old style, but they the, the the quality of the film, the quality of the look, quality of the light looks modern. Think of things yes. like Dallas Buyers Club or yes. that sort of thing. I'm, not,
1: not, I'm thinking thinking of La La Land actually. There's something sort of. Bit archaic about the way that people dress and mm. and the set and the cars, but it's produced in a really obviously twenty seventeen way.
0: Yeah, and that's not a bad thing, but that's a choice. Whereas Away Days, we chose it to look like it could be a film from the seventies, mm. so we shot it in a seventies way, we edited it, we coloured it in a way it looks like kind of that yellowed, tinge you get from seventies film, and that feel of a seventies film, and this felt somewhere between those two it really evoked that feeling of of eight millimeter film of home videos of faded photographs and you the film instantly transported me through those sort of visual color elements to this time and not only this time but the idea of memories of this time you and i have it a little bit of like there are because sam and i grew up kind of pre-digital shall we say so there aren't loads of photos of of us growing up but the ones they are, they have that feeling of a, of a 90s instant camera, mostly, don't they? Mm. And I look at those photos, and I'm transported not only to that time, but to you and I and our friends discussing that time. It's not about that time, about but I'm already in the place of remembrance of that time. And this film felt the same. It felt like, visually, we are entering memory, mm. and we're entering emotional reaction. And they have the, the boys get the diary um, from Celia and they kind of piece together things happening but it's a, t- it's a teenage girl diary and they, 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 they add more weight to things they try and transpose stuff to make it more make sense but they can't and so all we, we're in this loss this mire of memory um and like the the film that's at the scene at the end is really bizarre and this idea of an asphyxiation party Mm. Um, the debutante and like, to that, to me, it's like, well, this is. Like, I don't think this was how it was. Like, it probably wasn't all this, you know, green fog in the air, everyone wearing gas masks. Kind of, thing. it probably wasn't in the real world how it was. But the teenage boys' remembrance of those parties are a certain way. I'm sure, you know, my and sound remembrances of our teenage parties, which you know, either you know, go from the very dull to the very exciting, are probably neither of the two. They all kind of sit in the middle. But through time and retelling, they end up. Something else, and they they talk about how these the boys have retold these stories and tried to piece them together in different ways to try and make a full story. And over that kind of permanent retelling, it's gonna twist and turn.
1: That that's what I felt about this film. That it's interesting that you you mentioned memory there. I was thinking of it as sort of some in some ways. This film feels hugely. it, it feels like a hugely accurate portrayal of. What it is to be a teenager. Mm-hmm. There's something really evocative, and I, I mean, I'm not going to tread any recommendation dose by saying what films it reminds me of. But there is something, I mean, about this experience of being a teenager of, and like you said, it's of memory not quite working, and is the confusion of the actors playing the girls all being. Roughly the same age, and the the characters looking the same, but like like you say, it's it's part of what it is to be a confused teenage boy, and also there is something. I mean, this is this is a very female driven film. Not only do you have Lux and the other sisters, but you have Kathleen Turner as the strong presence in the house. I mentioned it. That it's very matriarchal, the, mm. the father sort of fades into the background. But the thing is, this is presented from a masculine point of view. So all of this is about what it is to be a teenage boy. And it's kind of what it is to be a teenage boy trying to understand what it is to be a teenage girl and failing completely.
0: I, I think that's, that's, that's you know, a, a commonality of, of male teenage experience, is this coming up against sort of the female especially in, a, in this kind of unified female sort of clan they've got here. And as, as boys and girls go through puberty, this idea that the opposite sex are complete mysteries. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's, and this is where I think that we get into the, this world of, of love versus lust. And I think that they mentioned the end Yeah, you know, where we, you know, all we know is we love them. and, a, I don't think they did, but I think what it is is lust, and that's where I think it ties together with the Trip Fontaine character, is that these boys they never got anywhere with the Lisbon sisters. Trip did. Trip had sex with Lux, and at that point he's sated his lust, and that's when he lost interest. And he left her on the field, and it's almost like over the time, this lust for this teenage girls has transformed into these men, in into this love they think they have for them but it's a remembrance love. I mean, I think there's a common sort of narrative there of, of the one that got away. We all have, in in the real world, we all have the idea of the one that got away. Um, that over time, especially if that one that got away isn't in your life anymore, or isn't someone you can kind of still look up and see and how they're doing, they can transpose and change over time and start to mean more and grow in your memory to be this great lost love, even if they were just some hot girl you knew when you were a teenager or a hot boy
1: hmm i think actually i I was based on what you were saying there i was thinking about the the title which is another thing that doesn't really make sense and is a bit annoying if you think about it too much without yeah it's it's it could be a a bit misleading because as you said Lux is, is not a virgin when she commits suicide. Mm. This is not about the suicides of five virgins. I mean, it's, it's quite probable that four out of the five were virgins, but it, it's not technically the virgin suicides. And I was wondering there if kind of what the title is referring to is not just, and I'm not saying that... the suicides of other people it's it's not those particular suicides that we're talking about but this idea of innocence Mm. is lost and there's something about i mean the the they are virgins who commit suicide oh it is it is virginity which dies because it's sort of the the boys innocence is kind of wrapped up in the girls i'm not Quite sure I am trying to say, but there no, is something. I, I see about what you are saying. Boys.
0: It is this idea of the loss of innocence, mm. um, and the idea of expose the real world. But the exposure that there is a, a, well, the film. This is a strange thing. Is I think the film doesn't give clear answers. The film tries to. I think many may say, well, you know, exposing these girls to the wider world through homecoming dance, meeting trip, meeting the boys. That is what kind of you know pushes them towards this moment. You know, there's a scene in which the mum makes her burn all her records. You know, and Lux clearly goes off the deep end a little bit following her sort of um, her night with with Trip. But Cecilia, who kicks up the whole thing, well, she she commits commit suicide before all of this. So the film kind of undercuts itself there. I think that, not, in, I think much intentionally because of that. But I think the film is about this loss of innocence and the idea of the suburbs, which is often. Often considered like a nice, calm, safe place to be a family and to raise a family. And obviously there's a great, uh, narrow tradition of trying to undercut that in the darker side of suburbs. But this isn't about the darker sides, because there's no darkness in film. There isn't... And the mum's a bit strict and, and controlling, but she's not evil. She's not a bad mother. No. Um, and neither is the dad. The dad's a bit weak-willed, and, you know, you certainly see towards the end when... Um, Things Starts going a bit wrong for him, he starts to lose his mind a little bit. But they aren't bad people in that respect, and no one in this film is a bad person. The film doesn't offer any kind of easy answer to go, Well, that person there they caused this. But I think that no, that you it's that exposure that even in these safe spaces, even in these places where there's nothing wrong. Things can still go awry, and you can come up against the idea of these innocents of these, I suppose it would be Virginia girls um, in their white smocks and that sort of stuff. That even those can come up against the harshness of the realities and come up against the sort of the brutality of the world. And in this safe space, it can lead to a tragedy.
1: So, after that, surprising I mean, surprising for me, and this sounds like for you as well, surprising dip into. Um, filmmaking what recommendations do you have
0: i've, this I've got two recommendations um i've gone one actor and one thematic i think the thematic one's not really surprised anyone who knows me um or listened to the show for a while because it's a film i recommend quite a lot so i'll start there um, and my recommendation is very thematically very clearly linked to you is the 1986 film stand by me
1: peep behind the behind the curtain for people that um, I tend to write our footnotes as as we're doing recommendations, and I had already written Stand By Me as Rob's first one. I'm nothing is <laughs> unpredictable.
0: This film speaks to me in ways I will never quite express, and I fear the day that we do it on a show because I don't think I will have the words to compress what it means to me. But it has that same essence of, you know, it's, it's a film told by an older man about his youth has the idea of these boys kind of coming up against the realities of the world and what it means to affect them down the line yeah it, it is very much in that same kind of wheelhouse and I don't think I need to explain more how those two films kind of are mirrors of each other. My other film recommendation is a actorly one and I went to kind of do through some of the, sort of the lesson and I always like to find lesson actors um, and some of the boys but in the end I came back to Josh Hartnett. Josh Hartnett is Tripodanus, and he's an actor who has kind of done different things, but he's never quite broken out in his adult career in a way that maybe his teenage and uh, sort of young adult work promised he would. And the film that really brought him to my attention the first time around is a film from 1998, and that's The Faculty. We've talked about it previously, I'm sure, in recommendations. Essentially, it is a, a invasion of the body snatchers set in the high school, um, starring Jelena Brewster, Claire Duvall, Josh Hartnett as, as a eclectic group of you know breakfast club kids who have to thwart an alien invasion of their um their school it's from the 90s so it's straight in that um high school comedy high school action movie kind of genre that went through the 90s but it's smart it's very funny it has some good action and it's it's well cast and well acted throughout um there's great support from almost every supporting actress and actor in it if you haven't seen it and it isn't one that so you say is as common knowledge these days as it is for us 80s and 90s kids, I would highly recommend checking out The Faculty if you haven't seen it. What about you Sam, do you have some recommendations for us if I haven't thrown them for you?
1: Yes, I thought you were going to with your second one um, it's a, a film that I know we both like and it's also I mean I, I was actually I've forgotten about The Faculty so that's a brilliant chat. Um but another film that we both like from I suppose the other end of, the other end, but much later on in Josh Hart's career, is the film Lucky Number Eleven, and I saw this film sort of by accident, and it it just blew me away. And I remember texting Rob saying, "Why do more people not know about this film?" Mm. So you, if you haven't seen Lucky Lucky Number Eleven, go and watch that. It's a brilliant film. Um. And my second one is another actor recommendation. It's a very, very young. Kirsten Dunst was in a classic film from 1994, Interview with a Vampire. Um, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Um, don't need to say much more about it. It's it's a great film. So they, those are my two. One, one classic, one almost entirely forgotten, yet should be as classic, I feel.
0: Fair enough. Excellent. Well, guys, we are going to be back next week, um, continuing our Sophia Coppola season uh, with her next film in series, Lost in Translation. Till then, you can find us both on Twitter at Prestige Podcast.
1: You can find just me at Life underscore academic. And you
0: can find me at Rob Kaiju. I want to, guys, have a quick plug for two things before we wrap up. One of which is we make this show, and we love making this show, and we're making it for a couple of years now. If you like this show, we would really appreciate um, you helping support, basically. There are costs with the hosting and all the sort of editing and production of this show. And we have a Patreon for Kaidra FM. Any money, and even a dollar a month would really help us to continue doing this show um, as we kind of move forward. Secondly, one of our sister shows, brother shows, our network shows, The Space Jam Continuum, are doing their first live show. They are, if you don't know this podcast, they're currently working through all of the Looney Tunes cartoons from the 40s onwards, trying to build a cohesive cinematic universe of, of these cartoons, trying to understand how they all fit together. Um, it's very funny, it's quite irreverent and dark at times, um, but they are reaching the late 40s, at which point Jessica Rabbit and Who Framed Roger Rabbit is coming into, into view. So they are putting on a show, they are going to be screening Who Framed Roger Rabbit at the pavilion in Reading and they then be recording live afterwards their episode covering that movie if you want tickets you can get them at kaiju.fm forward slash live or you can even go into the Nags Pug in Reading and get them directly from the bar and that's it guys we'll be back next week with lots of installation. bye